Let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful thing it is that we are able to gather together to worship you, to sing praises to your name, to lift high your Son, Christ our Savior. Father, I pray that today that we would lay aside the things of the earth, that we would set aside our distractions, that we would set aside our earthly entanglements, Lord, and we would devote our attention, our minds, and our hearts fully to you. That as we come to your word this morning, Lord, I pray that we would be changed. That, Lord, we would not hear these things and think, oh, well, those are important for other people, not for me. That, Lord, we would not hear these things and think that these are relics for another time, but rather, Lord, that we would recognize them as the timeless word of the eternal God and that they would change us change our hearts, change our minds, change our actions, Lord, that we would be more like Christ, that we would rest fully in his grace. Help us, Lord, to not think that we are earning your pleasure by our attendance here this morning, Lord, but rather to rightly understand that we are here because we love Christ that we are here because we love one another, that we are here because your word calls us to gather with the body. And so, Lord, please bless this time and bless your people. Bless this message in Christ's name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 will begin in verse 16 this morning. And today we are going to conclude our series through the book of Malachi. Over the last few weeks, we have seen the Lord call the people of Israel to account. He has repeatedly called them out for their wickedness. They've been called to account for not believing that the Lord loved them. The book began with the Lord saying, Israel, I have loved you. And yet you say, how have you loved us, Lord? Israel has been despising the Lord's name by bringing deficient offerings. Bringing blemished animals, crippled animals, sick animals, when they are called to bring their best. They have been called to account for forsaking the covenant of God by abandoning their wives and by marrying those who worship False gods. They have been called to account for accusing the Lord of delighting in evil. They have been called to account for not bringing the first tenth of their produce into the temple as they are commanded in the law to do. And they are called to account for stating that serving the Lord is of no value to them. 
over and over and over again, the Lord has said, you are wrong. And this morning we're going to see something that we have not yet seen in the book of Malachi. Some of the people are going to respond positively to the word of God. And as a result, the Lord is going to remind them of the genuine distinction between those who fear the Lord and those who are wicked. Make no mistake, this is the only distinction that exists. There is no middle ground. There is no partial servant of God, as though you can be kind of wicked or partially fear the Lord. There are only two camps, wickedness or righteousness. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. There is no other place to be. You are one or the other. And one will face destruction in the day of judgment. And the other will find salvation in the day of judgment. But what we must remember and what is made clear for us here in our passage we will look at today is that it is only by the grace of God that anyone fears the Lord at all. It is only by God's grace that those things happen. It would be tempting to read today's passage and find our salvation in our own ability, in our own ability to obey. It's tempting to read passages like we're going to read today where it says, do what is right. And for us to say, okay, I'll do what is right and thus I will be saved. Our salvation, however, comes through Christ the Lord, the only one who obeys, the only one who seeks God. He is the one in whom we have to trust. He is the one in whom we find the grace of God. He is the one whom we worship today and every day. And so let's look together. Starting in Malachi 3, we'll look at verses 16 through 18, where we will see the Lord's treasured possession. The Lord's treasured possession. If you got one of our bulletins when you came in or grabbed one of our listening guides, you'll see there are three points this morning, and that's our first one. The Lord's treasured possession. Possession. So let's read together Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, and we'll read through verse 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. So as I said before, we see something here in the book of Malachi that we have yet to see. People respond positively to the Word of God. It tells us that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. If you remember back to our message last week, in chapter 3, verse 5, the Lord gives a rundown 
of all of the wickedness, all of the evildoers, that he is going to come against them in judgment. Let me read that for you. It says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The root of the wickedness of Israel, the root truly of all wickedness, is a lack of fear of the Lord. A lack of fear of the Lord. Because if you truly believe that the Lord is God, if you truly believe that He is who He says He is, you would fear His power. You would fear His justice. You would fear His judgment. But for those who are caught up in wickedness, they don't fear those things. In a very practical sense, they have an underlying belief that God is not real. Because if God were real, they most assuredly would fear him. And that's the issue here. The issue here is that a lack of fear of God is an indicator of a lack of belief in God. Those who believe in God fear God. And so that's who these people are, those who fear the Lord. And the Word tells us that they spoke to one another. This is a, a very succinct way of saying that they are calling one another to account for how they have neglected to do what is right. Some of them may have very well been guilty of the things that the Lord has been accusing Israel of. Maybe they had brought deficient sacrifices. Maybe they had neglected to bring the tithe. Maybe they were saying the Lord must delight in wickedness because evil prospers and the good perish. Maybe they were doing those things. And suddenly, in hearing the word of the Lord, their hearts are turned. They recognize by the move of the Spirit inside of them that they are wrong. Perhaps... They haven't done those things, but they have failed to speak up against the wickedness among the people. You see, as a part of the community of God's people, we are obligated to speak against wickedness when it appears. If we don't, we are in sin. Part of the reason why we are called to be a part of a body of believers is so that we can hold one another accountable. Now that does not mean that we're supposed to go snooping through one another's garbage and reading everyone else's text messages looking for secret sins. That's not the kind of community that I'm, I'm saying the word calls us to have. But Scott is my brother in Christ. And if I observe in Christ, in, in Scott, a pattern of sin, I am to call Scott to Christlikeness. I am to go to him and say, brother, listen, I'm seeing this in your life. Can we talk about this? Can we talk about how I can help you fight against this sin? How you can repent of this and surrender yourself more fully to Christ? And what was happening in Israel was that people were afraid to speak up. When their next door neighbor abandoned his wife to go marry this foreign woman who worships foreign gods, he said, man, he really shouldn't have done that. But he didn't say that to anybody but himself. 
And so when it says that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, they are recognizing how they have been complicit in sin. And as a community of believers, we must not be complicit in sin. This is a reminder of who God is and what a life devoted to him looks like. That's what they're doing with one another. And then we're told that the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Remember that at multiple points in the book of Malachi, we have the Lord expressing to the people that he does not hear their cries, that he does not accept their worship, that their offerings are not coming before him. And now, with this simple act, those who fear the Lord speaking to one another, what are we told? That the Lord hears them. That the Lord pays attention to them. Why? Because they are striving together to serve the Lord. And when it talks about this book of remembrance, in the ancient world, this was a common thing for kings to have a book written of people who had served them well so that they would be remembered. This kind of book was central to the story of the book of Esther. Esther's uncle did something that was worthy of remembering, and the king had it written down in a book of remembrance. And later on, later on, he can't sleep. And so he has one of these books brought to him. And and in reading the book, he he hears about how Esther's uncle had done these remarkable things for him. And he says, oh, we need to honor this man. And the Lord uses it to save his people and to cause the downfall of the wicked. So this is a a thing that is familiar to the people of Israel. But also, please understand that this is a figure of speech meant to make the Lord accessible to us. The Lord does not need a book of remembrance because the Lord cannot forget. The Lord does not need to write down the names of those who served him well. Because the Lord knows all things. The Lord wills all things. And so he doesn't need a book of remembrance. This is something written to help us to compartmentalize God into our minds so that we understand him. It's a way of causing a flag to go off in the minds of the reader to go, oh, he's going to remember. He's going to remember. He will not forget. It's written down for him to never forget. The Lord remembers those who love him and serve him. In fact, verse 17 says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. The Lord claims those who fear him as his treasured possession. The Lord, who owns all things, who is sovereign ruler over all of creation, what is his possession that he treasures? His people. What is the thing that he wants to have the most? His people. Those who fear his name, who serve him. The Lord delights in his people. And this delight means that he will spare them in the day of judgment. 
They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. The delight of the Lord and his people means that when judgment comes, they will be spared. Because the truth is, brothers and sisters, we are just as wicked as those who are not the people of God. We are not the people of God because we are somehow better. We are not the people of God because we are somehow smarter. We're not more moral. We are the people of God by God's grace alone. And so, when we read things like this, this should not cause us to swell with pride. This should cause us to worship God in gratefulness. Because if it were not for His grace, we could not stand in the day of judgment. It is only by His grace that these things can be. And how do we find confidence that the Lord will spare us in his judgment? Look at the way, look at the language used here. This is not an accident. Nothing in the scriptures is an accident. I will spare them as a man spares who? His son who serves him. When the Lord looks upon us, he sees the perfect obedience of his son. That is how we are saved from judgment. It is not because the Lord looks upon me and says, well, Corey did some good things in his life. And because of his goodness, I'm going to save him from judgment. No, it is because when the Lord looks upon me, he sees the perfect obedience and righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And he spares me as a man spares his son who serves him. And the irony of that is that Christ was not spared. That's the irony of that statement. His son was not spared. His son bore the wrath that should have been for us. In our assurance of pardon reading this morning, Andrew read that verse. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Where we are spared from judgment, Christ has borne the full wrath of God for sin. Why? Because we are the Lord's treasured possession. Verse 18 says, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is where we will find the true distinction between the righteous and the wicked in judgment. It is tempting. In fact, we often use language like this flippantly to look at the circumstances of our lives, to look at the circumstances of the lives of those around us and use those circumstances as the marker of whether or not we or anyone else has found favor with God. 
We see people who have much, who have many possessions, who might have great wealth. And if they're Christians, what do we say? Oh, well, they're, they're blessed of God. And they are. But it's not because of anything in them. It's not because they are somehow more righteous than us. Also, we must be really careful because if we believe that to be the blessing of God, then when our circumstances are hard, when we have nothing, when we go hungry, when we face persecution, when we have loss and sorrow and grief and suffering, we're tempted to think the inverse. Well, I must have done something wrong and the Lord is now punishing me. No. All Things exist for one purpose and one purpose only, the glory of God. And so if your circumstances are hard, it is for the glory of God in your sanctification. Because God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And for those who are not in Christ, who maybe have much, guess what? They are storing up for themselves wrath. They have no excuse. All of these things exist to remind us that the distinction exists only in judgment. The Israelites were looking at who was doing well and who was struggling, and they were saying, well, clearly God delights in evil because those who are wicked are doing well and those who are righteous are doing poorly. So clearly God must delight in evil. I think we need to remind ourselves that there was none who found more favor with God than his perfect son. And yet if you look upon the circumstances of his life, it would appear as though the Lord had utterly despised him. Christ suffered more severely than any person ever has. And yet, can we say that there's any more favored him. And so if it's the favor of God that leads to pleasant circumstances, could we say Christ is favored? No. We have to reframe our thinking and think as Christ does. Think as the word instructs us to. Because the true matter is whether or not one stands in the judgment is the marker of whether or not they have found favor with God. And that's what we find in the next section, where we see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. We're told there at the beginning of chapter 4, Behold, the day is coming. There's a popular saying that, only two, that the only two things that are certain in life are death and taxes. But the reality is that that saying is not true. We hear all the time about people who get away with not paying taxes. 
And the Bible tells us about the fact that some people will never taste death because they will be alive when Christ returns. Not to mention people like Enoch who walked with God and he was not for God took him. Or Elijah who was carried to heaven without seeing death. But do you know what is certain? Death may not be certain. Taxes may not be certain. But do you know what is certain? The judgment of God. The day is coming. Not only is it absolutely coming, but it has already been prepared. We're told there in the very beginning of chapter 4, it says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven. When we cook things in an oven, one of the most important things that we do is preheat the oven. When I was younger, I never understood the point of that. I would say, okay, we'll just turn it on the temperature, throw it in the oven, and okay. And then I never understood why when the box said it'd be ready in 18 minutes, and I went in 18 minutes, it still wasn't ready. Well, it's because the oven wasn't hot yet. If you've got an oven like ours, sometimes it takes 18 minutes to preheat. It takes a little while. Think of it like that. This is the same imagery here. The oven is already burning. The day of judgment is so sure that the Lord has already preheated the oven. And it is burning so hot that the wicked will be stubble. So thoroughly cooked that there will be nothing recognizable left of it. Like when you cook a pizza in the oven and the cheese drips over the side and gets down in the bottom and you don't clean it out and over time it just keeps cooking and cooking and cooking until it turns into that black crust on the bottom of your oven. It's the same imagery here. So hot, so thorough that it will be unrecognizable. The wicked will be completely and utterly destroyed. They use the, it also uses the imagery of that the, the, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze and it, it's going to burn them so thoroughly that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's like burning a crop so severely that every part of the plant from the root in the ground to all of the branches are all gone. That is how hot, that is how severe the judgment of God is. But judgment is different for those who fear the Lord. The same righteousness that is brought about burning like an oven is talked about as the sun of righteousness that will rise with healing in its wings. Judgment clears away all wickedness and God's people are finally free. We see this imagery in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, which says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And some of you, in hearing these words read aloud might be thinking, wait, this sounds familiar. Like we just sang this this morning. We did. 
Hark the herald angels sing, has it right? The son of righteousness is Christ. He is the one who rises with healing in his wings. Figurative language, folks. Jesus doesn't have wings. Calm down. But the whole point is, who is the one who brings judgment? The same judgment that destroys the wicked and frees the righteous. Jesus Christ. The day of his coming is the day of judgment. And all that differentiates it is whether or not you are one who fears the Lord. That's the only differentiating matter. Do you fear the Lord? Because when you stand before Christ, you're not going to be able to say, oh, well, well no, 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 listen, I helped, my ne- I helped my next door neighbor cut their grass that time, and, and I never cheated on my taxes, and I always drove the speed limit. None of that matters. Only one thing matters. Are you in Christ? That's it. It's the only thing that matters. And we would do well as we think about the judgment to remember God's good promises. That's what we see there in verses 4 through 6. God's good promises. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the first thing that we, hear, that we see here at the end of Malachi, as it closes, and this is, such, this is almost very odd, right? It's very abrupt. Judgment is going to come. And you better fear the Lord. And then here at the end, it says, remember the law. Remember the law. Now, please understand that this is not just a call to intellectually memorize what the law says, to think fondly of it. This is a call to obey the law. That's what the call is for Israel, to do what the law commands. But for us, as new covenant people of God, we understand this differently. We understand this differently because we have a broader and at the same time more focused understanding of the purpose of the law. In Galatians chapter 3, it says this, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by The whole purpose of the law was to bring Christ. That was the purpose of the law. The law exists to show each and every one of us that we cannot obey God on our own. That's why the law is so expansive. So that as we read it, we go, well, I've already violated that, and I've already violated that, and I've already violated that. And not only that, but places where the Israelites thought that they had not violated the law, Jesus helps them to see that they have, right? Well, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus says, well, if you've ever looked lustfully at a woman, yes, you have. They might think, 
I've never committed murder. And Jesus says, if you have ever hated someone, yes, you have. Jesus helps them to see that it's not just the outward actions, but the inward condition of their heart. And when you think about the law from that perspective, we really are completely without hope. And so here at the end of Malachi, what is the solution that the Lord gives to people who can't follow the law? Follow the law. Why? Because when you really understand the law, it's laid out right in front of you. Christ is the end of the law. That's the whole point. That's the whole meaning. Is that you look at the law and say, I can't do this. Thank God that he keeps his promises. And so we strive to live as Christ lived. We strive to do what is right. We strive to live as the Bible calls us. Why? Because we love Jesus. Not because it's going to make us saved. Not because it's going to earn us God points. Not because it's going to make us more like the Spirit. But because we love Jesus. We do what is right because we love the Lord. Not because it's going to save us, but because we love the Lord. The other promise that the Lord makes is that we need to watch for the messenger the herald of the son of righteousness. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. One of the most incredible things about the book of Malachi is this verse, this, these two verses. And here's why. I want you to notice what the Lord promises here. That before judgment comes, now he's already warned about judgment over and over and over again, not just here, but all over the Old Testament. And here in the last book, before Christ comes, what does he say? I'm going to send a herald first. Judgment is not just going to pop up on you one day and you're all doomed. I'm going to send a herald first. And not only am I going to send a herald first, but through the work of this herald, what is going to happen? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The work that needs to be done for the accepting of Jesus, the Lord promises to do it. The Lord says, judgment is coming, and I'm going to warn you first, after warning you first a whole lot, I'm going to warn you first, and I'm going to do what is necessary so that you can stand in the judgment. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that we love. The God who does what is required for his people who cannot do it themselves. The Lord does not say, hey folks, I gave you the law, figure it out. The Lord says, I will save you. Every 
thing that we need for salvation has been promised to us by God. The Lord does not send us a lifeline. It is not as though we are drowning and the Lord throws a life preserver off of the ship. No, we are dead and the Lord makes us alive. It is all grace. It is all a work of the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's good promise, God's good promise is that he saves. God's promise is not, I'm going to send a baby to make it possible. God's, God's good promise is, I am going to save my people. The end. That is why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because Christ is the fulfillment of this promise. He is our salvation. And so as we conclude the book of Malachi, some things that we should take with us. First of all, we are saved by grace alone. Good works come from faith and not the other way around. That we should walk in the works that are prepared beforehand for us. And that we in the most counterintuitive thing in all of creation should look forward to judgment. We as Christians should look forward to the day of the Lord. Why? Because that is the day when freed from sinning, we will be with Christ forever. The book of Malachi is a reminder that we should be devoted to God not because we are inwardly capable, but because God is devoted to us in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are so unworthy of your love, so unworthy of your grace, so unworthy of your making us your treasured possession. And yet, Lord, you have done that because you are good. So, Father, today I pray that we would place our faith in you and in you alone. That we would not seek to do good works to be saved, but that we would rest in the promise that you have made, that Christ is our salvation. Thank you, Father. Thank you for saving us. We pray this in Christ's name.